This is Undisciplined, I'm Matthew LaPlante. Just about everybody knows about the extinction event that started, presumably with a meteor strike that wiped out most of the dinosaurs on our planet and a whole lot of other life forms too. That happened about 66 million years ago, and it was a devastating extinction. It wiped out about 75% of life on Earth. But it turns out that wasn't the planet's largest extinction event. The biggest hit to life on this planet came about 185 million years before that event. 250 million years ago, right before the dinosaurs showed up on our planet, the Earth was populated with plants and animals that were almost entirely wiped out after a series of massive volcanic eruptions in Siberia in which geologists call the Permo-Triassic extinction, which took out about 70% of terrestrial species and, are you ready for this, 96% of the planet's marine species. But my guest today says the most devastating part of this event wasn't the volcanic blasts themselves or even what they spewed into the air. It was the massive amounts of coal that was ignited by the eruptions. Lindy Elkins-Tanton is a planetary scientist whose work focuses on the evolution of terrestrial planets and the relationship between our planet and the life it sustains. Her team's recent study provides the first direct evidence that extensive coal burning is a cause of the Permo-Triassic extinction. She's the managing director of the Interplanetary Initiative at Arizona State University, and she's joining us from her home in Massachusetts. Lindy Elkins-Tanton, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for your interest in this project. I'm really excited to talk about it. The Permo-Triassic extinction, it's like this Dante's Inferno-level geologic event. (laughs) Before we get to how we think it happened, can you help put into context Like, just how hot things got on this planet after this Mm, thing. mm. This is one of the really hard things about the Primo-Triassic is a long time ago, 252 million years ago. So what evidence do we actually have left that will tell us anything about the conditions on the Earth at that time? Well, some scientists have figured out ways to look at fossils of leaves of plants that lived at that time. And also the way that oxygen is taken up by plants and put into the fossil record And estimates range as high as 105 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's really hard to know exactly how it was, but it was hot. And that's just one of the terrible symptoms that seems to have caused or at least gone along with this extinction. And this wiped out like pretty much, well, not everything, but like really close to everything. What, What was life on Earth like immediately before and after this event? This was a really big one. As you say, this was the biggest one that we know of in geologic history. It was almost the end of multicellular life for a while. Beforehand, there was a very rich ecosystem in the oceans with some big fish-like animals and kind of proto-dinosaur, reptile kind of things, and then trilobites. For anybody who's ever looked at fossils, a lot of us love trilobites. They look a little bit like horseshoe crabs. And they were very, very abundant in many species of microorganisms in the oceans. And on land, there were big tree-like plants and there were animals too, four-legged animals running around, things that we wouldn't recognize now, things that are not famous from the dinosaur era because most of them went extinct. So there was a super rich ecosystem both on land and on the ocean, and it was just wiped out. There has been this story, this theory that geologists have had for quite some time that coal burning was responsible for the Permo-Triassic extinction, but this had remained a hypothesis without any direct evidence for a long time. What was standing in the way of getting that direct evidence? There were a number of things standing in the way. I might even back up a step and say, why did people even hypothesize that coal burning could be 
the yeah. cause of this extinction. So the, the what's called the golden spike locality, the type locality where people measure this extinction is in China. And it's actually now a, a national park. It's a protected geological site in China. Now, seemingly at the same time as that extinction, there was one of the biggest volcanic eruptions in Earth history, a kind of eruption called a flood basalt, so a kind of eruption that isn't even happening on Earth today anywhere. It's happened maybe a dozen times in Earth history where fissures opened up and lava just oozed out for a really long time, like a million years, and made a huge, huge frozen lava plate over the surface of the Earth. It's so much lava that if it was done on the continental United States, it would have covered the whole country wow. of the United States up to almost a mile in depth. So that's the background to this coal hypothesis, because people also knew that where those lavas primarily erupted in what's now Siberia, there was also a great big basin filled with coal, and a lot of that coal still exists. And so people had sort of put two and two together and said, well, it seems like they happened at the same time. It seems like the lava probably would have mobilized a lot of coal, even though there's a lot left. So maybe that's what caused it. And so it was pretty easy to make that hypothesis, even without ever going to any of the places. So then what stands in the way is, first, you have to prove that the eruptions in Siberia started first and the extinction happened afterwards. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just a coincidence, <laughs> right? right? And getting dates that exact back that long in geological history is hugely difficult. And that's something that our team did. We had these wonderful Russian collaborators. We had people in Norway and in the UK and France and Canada, all around the place. And everybody brought their different disciplinary expertise to this problem. Because you could guess from what I've just described that you would need many different people with many different areas of expertise to try to answer these questions. And then you've got to have the willpower, the money, and the capability of getting out into central Siberia to collect samples and bring them home again. And so the Russians long since figured out that the magma came up into the rock of the continent and then spread out horizontally into these table-like structures and basically heated up all the rock that was there already. So one amazing thing we discovered was that heated rock, with the help of the heat of the magma and fluids from the magma, actually gave off naturally occurring chlorofluorocarbons. These are the chemicals that we think of as one of the worst things that humans ever invented. We use them for refrigerants. They're great for refrigerants, but they destroy the ozone layer and they're huge greenhouse gases. So there have been all these international accords not to use certain ones. Well, I never knew this was possible, but Mother Nature made her own naturally occurring ones using the lava from the Siberian flood basalt. So that was one amazing thing we discovered. And everywhere we go, we're looking for places where the magma and the coal interacted. And we'd find places where they were side by side. There was no evidence that the coal had been burned. Sometimes it had been heated, and you could tell that some carbon had been driven off. But nothing that really indicated a lot of coal had been burned. Meantime, one other piece of evidence that was coming along, known for a very long time, that when you measure the carbon that you find in ocean sediments, so the carbon that basically came out of the air and was eventually deposited as rock on the bottom of the oceans, right at the end Permian, the weight of the carbon, the individual carbon atoms, move to a much lighter weight of carbon, a lighter isotope. And those light isotopes of carbon are generally from plants. It's plants that really sequester the light carbon from the heavy carbon. So why would there be a signal all over the world that carbon suddenly went light? And so that was another thing that made people say it must be coal burning. But still, you know, three seasons in Siberia, we couldn't find any evidence for it. 
at some point you guys come across a scientific paper and and it's one I gather that wasn't super high profile, but it described the location of the sorts of formation of volcanic materials that you were looking for. And this this sort of became like a treasure map for you. It really was. This was one of the most wonderful moments of my scientific career so far. First of all, we did prove that the flood basalts started first and then the extinction happened. So now the door is open to somehow prove that the flood basalts were then able to cause the extinction. But this is the problem with flood basalts. In general, and we have evidence from the dozen or so that we can look at geologically, the lava is very smooth and just flows out really smoothly, kind of like how Kilauea in Hawaii has been erupting recently, where you can more or less walk up and look at the lava and go home again. You have not died unless something terrible happens, like you trip and fall. Um, <laughs> it's pretty benign. you know. It, it kills what it rolls over, but it doesn't cause a global event. So there were reports that in Siberia, there was a, a great big region where the eruptions have been explosive, not effusive, the way I was just describing, but explosive like Pinatubo, like a volcano in Indonesia or the Philippines that drives a giant cloud of ash and gas way up into the atmosphere. That's the kind of eruption that can cause a global extinction. That's the kind of eruption that takes these gases and puts it up into the stratosphere where it'll spread across the Northern Hemisphere and change the climate of the planet, not these normal flood basalts. So all this time I'm looking, 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 where are these explosive rocks? And no one I talked to knew, and we were talking to a lot of people, all the top experts in the world about this. And finally we found this one paper, just a couple of pages long in Russian, in a Russian geological journal, talking about a place down on the Angara River, not too far north of Lake Baikal, where the cliffs of the river were made entirely by the results of explosive eruptions of volcanoes. So not this lava, but just explosive rocks called tufts or volcanic plastics, where the rock has been fragmented by the exploding eruption and it kind of falls back like ash. They really had not been described in the scientific literature. And that paper was actually about pollen. It wasn't even really about the Siberian flood basalts. Oh my gosh. I love this, though, because, you know, we oftentimes sort of classify, I think, way more than we should, uh, even as a scientific community, but I think as a, as a lay community, too, like important science and then the other stuff. And mm -hmm. important information can come from anywhere because it's all part of a, a puzzle. It's such a good point. So often people say we shouldn't fund fundamental research. We should only fund applied research where we know exactly what the problem is we're trying to solve. But that's so limited by our imaginations. And as much as we'd like to revere our imaginations, they're not enough. Because whenever <laughs> we go out looking for something without an expectation, we discover things we never dreamt of. And this is a great example of how something that was a bit of fundamental science ended up informing a whole different problem. It's a great example of that. You and your team spent six years collecting samples in Siberia. If this was like a movie, this would be the montage where some awesome rock ballad or like an inspiring classical composition would play. And we'd watch you guys running around having all these awesome adventures, right? So so set this up for us because I've read about these adventures. You guys did some cool stuff. What, oh what would this gosh. montage look like? We had every kind of adventure. <laughs> these adventures included like there's helicopters and there's like there's, these big yes. long hikes. and Exactly. There's ex-Soviet troop carrying M8, M9 helicopters with bullet holes in them. One of the first ones I got in, the power supply was connected to the rotors by a cable that went up through the passenger compartment and connected to the rotors with what looked like a giant alligator clip. 
And the and the um, escape door, the second door, was welded shut with an extra fuel container in front of it. But we were lucky. We had great pilots. We were always taken safely to places we need to go. But a lot of these trips, what that entailed was getting in a helicopter, being flown several hundred kilometers away from the nearest town, dropped on a river, and we'd have these inflatable boats that we would then make. And then we float down the river for a couple of weeks, picking up the rocks from the cliffs. Because in Siberia, I came to understand, it's just an endless, endless view of trees and swamps. It's taiga and tundra as far as you can see and no rocks. The rocks only show up where the rivers have cut through. And so these trips all end up being boat trips, except for really there were two where we did long, long hikes through willow thickets and across streams. And we saw some interesting wildlife. We were in very wild areas. At one point, we were about 600 kilometers from another human. And that human was in a town that had no railroad and no road access. It was either river access or helicopters only. So we were very remote and it was a thrill. It was just the blessing of a lifetime to have those experiences. Okay, what I love about this is that at the heart of what you and your team were doing was, I mean, you were collecting cool rocks. That's that's something that pretty much every kid in the world mm-hmm. has done. So like setting aside the adventuristic aspects of this, I imagine there's got to be something just really pure and simple and joyful about finding cool rocks. It is incredibly joyful. This is something I wish for everyone in this world is to understand enough about the natural world that's around them. And there is natural world around you, whether you are on a 20th story apartment in Miami and you're looking at your balcony and there's a bit of moss, like whatever it is, there's something growing near you. There are animals around you. And if you learn to know what they are and something about their life cycle and to watch them change, it's such a gift to observe it with your eyes. You suddenly feel so much more connected. And there's this spark of amazing wonder and joy when you, it's like interpreting, when you suddenly understand the foreign language of the thing that you used to overlook without thinking. And that's what would happen to us going through Siberia and looking at these rocks. And when you did bring them back to the lab, you you analyzed these samples. You saw little bits of burnt wood and charcoal and coal and plants. What did this all tell you? Well, in the beginning, we weren't looking for those things because it never mm. occurred to us that that's where the coal would be found. We always thought we would see burnt coal lying around the lava or places where the lava had locally exploded interacting with coal. And we never saw that. So we were looking at other things. We were finding the evidence of the chlorofluorocarbons and of sulfur being released that made acid rain so strong that in places the oceans were as acidic as lemon juice, we discovered. But then going along the Angara River and later along a river called the Nizhnaya Tunguska River through those results of the explosive eruptions, I started seeing things that frankly just looked like pieces of charcoal in the rock. And some of my colleagues weren't very interested. That's not their field. They're like, oh, it's just a bit of burnt wood that got caught up in the lava. It doesn't mean anything. But there was something about it that just seemed really interesting to me. And I can't even really say what that was. But I started collecting those samples. And then what happened was I'd read this paper by a group in Canada led by Steve Grasby. And they had gone up to an Arctic island north of Canada and found at the same time period in the geologic record little bits of burnt coal. They're little hard spherical carbon droplets almost that only result in the current day from burning coal at very high temperature. 
in coal power plants, and they're almost never found in the geologic record. In fact, I'm not sure they've ever been found in the geologic record, except for by Steve in Canada, and then it turned out by us in Siberia. Hmm. When he found them in Canada, he and his team proved by microscopic analysis that these were high-temperature burnt pieces of coal, but where could they have come from? Well, there's a wind current that goes around the Northern Hemisphere and carries material straight from Siberia to those islands. And he said, there was coal burning in Siberia, and it was dropped here in this island. And so then it occurred to me, what if I send Steve pieces of these, this massive, massive explosive eruption evidence that we found along those rivers, finally, massive amounts, probably the largest volume of explosive volcanic rock on Earth at any time, anywhere, with these bits of charcoal that were big, and I could see them with my eye easily, I said, Steve, will you look and just see if those little droplets of high temperature burnt coal are in there? And they were, they were all through it. So then we knew that's really what had happened, that these magmas that interacted with the coal down in southern Siberia created these explosive eruptions because all the volatiles and gases that would be uh, released all at once, you know, steam and carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide and all these things flashing into superheated gas as the hot magmas interacted with fluids and coal beneath the surface of the ground, flash burning this coal into these tiny carbon droplets that Steve and his team in Canada could recognize because they'd already mm. seen them in the modern record and in the north of Canada. And that's how the whole mystery story got put together. And the effect of this, so this is a hypothesis, this is magna from these volcanoes setting off the burning of these coal deposits, a lot of coal deposits. And then the effect of this burning coal releases all of these gases and it sets off a greenhouse event that's maybe not completely unlike what we're experiencing today, mm, right? That's right. That's right. And because that was the second part of this mystery, I, I already talked about how the way that magma is released or lava is released from flood basalts tends to be very calm and almost yeah. never explosive. Well, the reason that explosive eruptions explode is because they're filled with gases. And so where would all the gases that would create climate change come from? It didn't really make sense that they came from the lavas themselves, because those lavas tend to be very low in any kind of climate changing gases. That's why they don't explode. So they all came from the continental rocks and the fluid in those rocks in Siberia at the time. It was as if you had a pot of all the worst kinds of gases that you'd never want released to the atmosphere, and then you just heated it up really hot for a million years during the time of these eruptions, all those gases got released. And up they went into the stratosphere and they're the same gases that we're releasing today, just as you say, it's carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide and chlorofluorocarbons, exactly the same as what we're doing today. When you put evidence behind a theory like this, when you say, you know, gosh, it sure does look like the burning of coal once wiped out almost all life on this planet, that's just, it's just frightening. What are you hoping people do with this information? Oh, because it, it sure sounds like an allegory. <laughs> it's such an allegory. A wonderful person to talk to about that is Jeff Keel at the National Centers for Atmospheric Research. He told us a decade ago that, in his opinion, the end Permian is the closest climate analog to the present day of any time in Earth history. So it's been recognized for a long time that the same kinds of things were happening and that it should be an exceptional cautionary tale for us. And in the beginning of this project, when we were first funded in 2006, a Time National Science Foundation funded us, we started talking to all kinds of filmmakers, thinking that this would be irresistible. And in fact, we had people filming us two seasons in Siberia, and um, there is a short film about this project 
in the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History in the Hall of Deep Time. It's on permanent display there. But in general, people didn't want to do it. And I was told over and over again, it's too depressing. No one wants to know this. And so I think the thing that we've all learned about climate change is that people's emotions overcome their willingness to look at data or understand the evidence that can tell them what's really going to happen. It's too frightening. They've got big economic interests. They care about themselves and their family right now, not what's going to happen in 100 years. It's very hard to get people out of that emotional point of view. Plus, there's been, frankly, big corporate money behind discounting the science and making it disreputable. And that's not a conspiracy theory. It's actually very well established that that did happen and it continues to happen. So we have many forces. Humans have many things that we care about. It's not just understanding the science as a metaphor or analogy or a fact and taking action on it, because that's pretty scary. You put a lot of your emotional stability on the line when you realize the danger that we're in. And so frankly, I'm not really expecting this result to cause any change. I think that to create change today we need to talk to people on a different level. And looking at numbers doesn't reach people's hearts. One thing that does reach people's hearts, inspirational science, space science, is something you're also very involved in. You're the principal investigator for a NASA discovery mission, which is expected to launch in August of 2022 and route the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter and a specific asteroid called Psyche. What's on Psyche that you're so interested in? Yeah, amazingly, these two projects are connected in ways that would take longer than our hour to discuss. (laughs) Psyche, we chose Psyche because we are really, really interested to understand how our rocky planets form. I've tried to, in the science that I've done, I've tried to pick the biggest and most important questions to try to make progress toward. And one of the big questions that we have is, why is there life on Earth? Because we honestly do not really know how life arises. And we don't know why so far this is the only place we've ever found life. Why isn't there life we found on Mars? Why not on Venus? Could still be there and we just haven't found it yet. Part of that is what makes these planets habitable. What makes the Earth the Earth? Well, it has got a metal core that makes a big, deep magnetic field that allows us to navigate. That's lovely, pre-GPS. But it also helps to protect our atmosphere. And to have life on Earth, we need water and we need an atmosphere that persists. One place we can never, ever go on our Earth or any other planet is the core, the metal core. But it's a really important part of what makes a habitable planet habitable. Well, it turns out there's this one asteroid out in the main asteroid belt, Psyche, that we think is made mostly of metal. And it's the only large metallic object in our solar system. So it is the only place that we can ever go and see what we think is a part of a core. We won't really know what it is till we get there because indeed we have no photos of it, no images, we've never seen it. It's this all remote sensing that gives us this information. So that's what we're doing. We're going out to see a kind of object in our solar system that humans have never before seen or explored in any way and see if we can learn something about the heritage of our Earth. The audacity of this mission is amazing. We are sending a spacecraft out to something that we haven't seen, but we know is there. Yeah. Can you even believe that's possible? Your work, it has you looking, you know, hundreds of millions of years into the past and also looking into the future through space exploration. When you exist in that space, how does that make you feel about about life? How does it make you feel Mm. about your life? Oh, well, really lucky, I have to say. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Really lucky. And 
the thing that drives me the most in all of my work is the notion of how a team can work together. That's what I care about the very most. And it's based in the fact that there is so much implicit and explicit bias in our world about what people are capable or worthy to do, depending on their gender, or their race, or their socioeconomic background, or their nationality, or anything you can guess. There's somebody has an assumption about what that person's able to do. But if you have a team that is set up so that everyone's voice is heard and everyone can rise on their merits, and these kinds of biases are limited, then it changes people's lives. And then the notion that we can build the spacecraft, and you touched upon this, which is so complicated that no single person can understand how it works. That is a human miracle that we now know how to do things that are that complicated and that we can send it off into space and that it will fly, you know, God willing, it will fly for a decade without a repair person and send back information about places we can't go. If we can do that, then we can fix the challenges we have in front of us here on Earth. And to me, that is fundamentally the purpose of why we do all these things. That's Lindy Elkins-Tanton. She's a scientist and explorer. She is the principal investigator of NASA's Psyche mission, the managing director of the Interplanetary Initiative, and the co-author of a paper recently published in the journal Geology that provides the first evidence of a link between coal burning and a massive extinction event 250 million years ago. Lindy Elkins-Tanton, thank you so much. I am so appreciative for your time and interest and to have the chance to talk about these things that I love so much. It's been really a pleasure. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.